Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Did anyone else see that? So someone texted, or Greg texted me, he's like, there's a huge spider on the wall back there. So we don't handle snakes, we handle spiders here at the district. But uh, so anyways, I just had to... I just, it was weird having it feel like it was behind me, but it's no longer there. So, uh, open your Bibles. Let's get there so that I'm not distracted anymore. Open your Bibles. Luke chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Uh, we're in week 22 of our series in Luke. And the, uh, the doctor turned theologian and historian of all things related to Jesus. He visits as many people in Jesus' day as he can, and, uh, and he Basically, he interviews them. He gets eyewitness testimony as to the events around Jesus' life and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension. And he records it uh, down for, for us to be able to have assurance, to be able to know that this is who Jesus is, that this is what he said, this is what he did, um, and this is what he ultimately accomplished for us uh, to be able to pass down and to be able to, to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, um, and that he is the Savior of the world. And so... That's why we're preaching through this book verse by verse, and, um, and, our, and our hope again for us today is as we see Jesus encounter a, a tax collector in the story and in the narrative, um, that we don't just consider this as a, a them or a they, as, as someone who's not necessarily like us because of the evil that they've done, but that we, we resonate with it, that we resonate with the story and that we see the transformation that happens and, and pray that the Lord would do a transformation for us as well. For the people of the day, in this story, last week we saw those who believed themselves to be sort of the elite, the, the pious ones, if you will, the favored ones, the self-righteous ones. We, we saw the introduction of the Pharisees into the narrative and into the, the life of Jesus as he encountered them. And what we see today is really the, the, the opposite of that. We see... The tax collectors, who are often referred to as the chief of sinners in this area. Um, and so we kind of see the coin flip to the other side. We see those that the public society would consider the bottom of the barrel. Um, the disgusting ones, the despised ones, the ones that nobody should uh, be friends with because of just how wretched that they are. And so we're going to see how Jesus interacts with this tax collector and then draw some observations from that for ourselves uh, today and see what the Lord might have for us. And so I'm going to pray one more time before we read this um, and, uh, and we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much again just for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that you pour out to us. Thank you for your spirit that Jesus sent to us in order to guide us in understanding the truth of your word. Uh, God, this is your word. This is inspired by you. This is uh, th th what you've breathed out in order for us to be conformed to the image of your son, in order for us to know who Jesus is and to be able to treasure who Jesus is and to be able to have our sins forgiven and for us uh, to be clean and for us to um, have no guilt and no shame and rather have just fellowship with you, unhindered fellowship with you, where we get to enjoy you in all things. And so, Father, thank you for what you have accomplished, and thank you for what you've done, and thank you for sending your son Jesus to us. 
And thank you for the Spirit of God as well. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Luke 5, 27 through 32 is going to be our passage for us today. And I'm going to read this and then we'll, we'll walk through it. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All right, so that's our passage for today. And I want to give you three observations from this passage and then conclude with some application at the end. But the three observations we're going to look at is that Jesus saw a tax collector. Uh, and then we're going to see that Jesus saves a tax collector. And see that Jesus sends a tax collector. And so uh, kind of going with some alliteration there to try to make it easy for you to remember. But these are the three things that we're looking at. And so this first one, Jesus saw a tax collector. It says in verse 27, after this, uh, which was what we looked at last week, after him healing the paralytic man that was uh, let down from the ceiling and the roof, and, and the Pharisees grumbled at this man who's able to forgive the sins and, for, and, and heal this paralytic. After that event, he went out, and it says in Matthew, as he was walking down by the sea, he saw a tax collector named Levi. Knowing what we've just read, the Pharisees, they question Jesus' judgment of this tax collector. So it's important for us to understand why. Why are they questioning Jesus' judgment about this tax collector? Because the Pharisees, they didn't have any issue with Jesus calling fishermen to follow him. They don't bring that up. They don't have any issues with that. So why do they have an issue with tax collectors? Why, why are tax collectors often compared to or synonymous with, with sinners? With sinners. And one thing that is often forgotten is that during the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by the Roman Empire. And so the Roman occupation of Israel involved more than just a military presence. The nation was also subject to Roman taxation. All right, so they were subject to paying taxes to whatever the Romans declared. And so the taxes in Galilee, for example, were forwarded by tax collectors like Levi to Herod Antipas, who was governing the area, and then from him he would send it off to Rome. And what Antipas would do is he would actually sell tax franchises to the highest bidder, and these such franchises were a very lucrative business during the time because what they would essentially do is they would have the requirements of the Roman Empire to collect taxes from the people, and then they were permitted to tax them higher than that, and whatever they got more, they were inclined to be able to keep for themselves. And so tax collectors had a certain amount that they would require to collect and then whatever was beyond that would basically go to their own wealth. And so you take the business of collecting money and resources from the people and then you mix in with that the sin of greed and the sin of selfishness and you get the business of tax collectors in this day and age. Uh, you get the recipe for an idolatrous and, and a greedy business if you will. And so what exactly did they collect? 
Well, here's just some of the taxes that they collect. There was a poll tax, uh, which is just literally a tax on existing. All right, so if you exist, then you are to pay a, a, or a, a poll tax. In addition to that, there was an income tax. In addition to that, there was a land tax, which was about one-tenth of all grain or one-fifth of all wine and fruit that you produced. There were taxes on the transport of goods, on the transport of letters, transport of produce, transport of, uh, or transportation of using roads, crossing bridges. Uh, there was a military tax on widows and orphans in order to provide horses for the soldiers. There was a tax on the unmarried men and women who could have children and were choosing not to. There was a tax on inheritance, usually about 5%. And almost anything and everything else that just the greedy minds of the tax collectors would create in the moment to pull more from the people, they would tax them. And so all of that just left plenty of room for larceny and extortion and exploitation, loan sharking even. If someone couldn't pay their taxes, the tax collectors would offer loans at incredibly high interest rates to just bury the people even that much more. And if people weren't paying their taxes, these tax collectors were known to be able to hire out bounty hunters to just go and abuse people and just beat them into ultimately paying their taxes. Um, and so needless to say, they, they earned the right to be viewed as repulsive. They earned the right to be viewed as um, someone that you just don't enjoy to hang out with, right? But the point to be made here is that Jesus did not just see a sinful tax collector. He didn't just see Levi as the Pharisees viewed him, but that he in fact saw a beloved saint. He saw a beloved saint. Jesus saw beyond this man's brokenness and sinfulness, and he saw the conformed image of himself once he forgives this man of his sins. Just like we saw last week, Jesus doesn't just see the paralyzed man, he sees the man who is able to walk. Because of what he does to him. Because of how he transforms him. Because of how he heals him ultimately. Because of him interacting with the presence of Jesus. And encountering the power of the Spirit. And submitting to the will of the Father. There is transformation that undergoes there. And that's exactly what Jesus is seeing when he sees this tax collector. He doesn't just see him in the condition that he is in. But he sees him as who he's going to restore. And ultimately reconcile him to become. When the Pharisees looked at Levi, this is what they saw. The Pharisees, in verse 30, Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, yes, for the most part, it was an earned title. They were right. Tax collectors were sinners and in need of forgiveness for their stealing and their extortion and the abuse of others. But the issue is that the Pharisees never lumped themselves into that same category but instead created a, a them versus us mentality. They didn't see them as broken versions of the Imago Dei in desperate need of restoration and reconciliation. But that's exactly how Jesus views this tax collector. He does view him as someone who is broken and is a broken image of what the Father created, but he sees how he is going to enter in and restore this man. Jesus does look at his situation. He does, he, he's aware of Levi's profession. He's aware of Levi's corruption. He's aware of Levi's reputation. He's aware of Levi's condition. But he considers it to be one of spiritual illness that needs a physician to heal it. 
And that's how he moves towards him. He pursues him. He doesn't just see the tax collector. He sees Levi, a broken image of God's crown of creation. And Jesus sees beyond that to what he can do for this sinful man. Jesus saves him, which is the second point. He saves a tax collector. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I've not come to call the righteous, which he's basically kind of giving a little jab there to the Pharisees. I've not come to those who consider themselves righteous, but to sinners in need of repentance. And sinners who, who recognize that they are broken. Who recognize that they're in need of a Savior. Who recognize that they can't earn anything on behalf of their own efforts or their own um, merit or their own status and privilege or whatnot. But rather they need a change. They need a transformation. They need to turn. And so he's come for sinners to repent. Jesus sees Levi, the tax collector, and he says, I can help this man. I can help him. I can heal this man of his corruption and sinful practices of a greedy tax collector. I can take this man who steals from people and make him a gift to people. I can transform this man from being greedy to being generous. I can save this man and redeem him for God's glory and for the good of those around him. Like Jesus doesn't just see Levi the tax collector, but he sees Matthew, the gift of God. He sees a transformation. Remember, Jesus likes to change people's names, right? Like when he shows up and he meets Simon for the first time, and Simon's like, hey, my name is Simon. And, and Jesus is like, not anymore. Hi, Peter. <laughs> Your name now means rock. And on you and through the, what I'm going to do with you, I'm going to ultimately create a foundation where I'm going to build my church. And it's going to come through the transformation that we see. That we see. Levi, there's not, honestly, there, there's not a ton to his name, uh, which it just means join. And it actually comes from Levi, who was the third son of Leah with Jacob. If you know anything about your Old Testament history, you've got Abraham, father of all of, of the Israelites, and Abraham has a son Isaac. Isaac has a son Jacob. Uh, Jacob really wants one woman, ends up with a different woman that he kind of has an issue with, doesn't like her, he thinks she has kind eyes. He's not attracted to her, okay? That's where we're at, all right? And, and, and she feels like she's hated by him and yet wants to have children with him. And so she starts having children with him. And, and literally she says, by the third child, that I am joined to him now. Maybe finally we will have some sort of reconciliation in our relationship when it comes to this. And there's something that kind of can be pulled from that when it comes to this story of Levi. Because what we do know is that that third son from Leah, Levi, comes the tribe of the Levites. Which comes the, um, um, the roles and job descriptions of all of the priests that come from that role as well. And everything that we've been looking at over the last few weeks is Jesus transforming the priesthood. Jesus coming in and providing for the people the something that the broken priests could not do. That the broken temple could not accomplish for them. The temple could not heal people and the priests could not heal people. And Jesus is ultimately coming in and saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of this. 
And so entering into Levi, I never think God just does things on coincidence. I think Levi in this moment is just a nod to a transformation of the priesthood to become an actual gift to the people rather than taking from the people. And I think this is one of those moments where we're able to see that Levi and who is also a.k.a. Matthew, and we know that because it's the parallel passages in Matthew 9, and ultimately as we see in Luke 10, and, or Matthew 10 and Luke 6, that he, instead of being named Levi, does change to Matthew when he's listed as one of the 12 apostles. But he goes from being Levi to being ultimately Matthew and known as Matthew, even the author of the gospel, which means simply a gift of God. So someone who has taken and taken and taken and robbed people of what was theirs or given to them that they worked hard for, now he becomes an actual gift to them, a resource to them rather than taking resources from them. And it's just something that's important to know because, again, that is what happens when you get saved by Jesus. That's what happens. When you are a sinner separate from Christ, all you do is suck resources from society because you're selfish, because you, you, you want personal gain. You want to uh, beat the other person to the promotion. You want to uh, get the largest house. You want to get the best vehicles. You want to just continue to gain and gain and gain. And honestly, like the biggest lie that we bought into as Americans is just we want more of what we already have. Because what we have is not enough and what we have is not satisfying. And so we just continue to, to wreak havoc around everything that is around for our own personal gain. We're just selfish. We're just selfish. And that's what the tax collectors really represent. They're the original American dream. We're going to take from everyone else in order to build our own feast. In order to have our own kingdom. And yet, everyone else, it's at the expense of them. And so rather than being a resource to them, we take from their resources. And what the gospel does for us is it transforms that. And as we see in this passage, it transforms Levi to become, rather than taking, giving. And he becomes a gift of God to others. And we see that in how Jesus then sends him out. To quote John Wesley for all of our Indiana Wesleyan grads that are in the room. No man ever went to heaven alone. He must either find friends or make them. The first fruit of following Jesus was to share Jesus with others. And Matthew goes from stealing from everyone for his own wealth to sharing with everyone his greatest wealth. His greatest wealth. After meeting Jesus, it says in verse 28, and leaving everything. I mean, don't just gloss over that. Same thing with the fishermen. With, with Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John, their partners, and they're on the boat. They have the greatest catch of their entire fishing career. And it says they come to shore and they left everything and started following Jesus. It's like you've, you've reached the pinnacle of success as, as your American dream or as whatever it is that you're so searching for that if I just get to this promotion or if I just get to this stage of life, I've accomplished, I've, I've arrived and what they're ultimately saying, what the Bible is constantly pointing to, the reason why we have examples like Solomon and we have examples of what he wrote in Ecclesiastes where he's like, I've had nothing and it, was, it provided no satisfaction. I had everything and it also provided no satisfaction. 
What the Bible is always pointing to is that the world was never the world was never designed to give you what would actually satisfy you, but was rather something that you could steward to point to the one who can actually satisfy you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what we're seeing here is that playing itself out. He's has everything that he could possibly accomplish when it comes to worldly status and wealth. And yet, he meets Jesus. And in one statement, follow me. I mean, Jesus transforms people. Sometimes instantaneously. Immediately, he leaves everything. He rose and followed Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now it's a party. Now it's a, it's a reception. It's a celebration. Matthew, instead of building towards his own great feast, throws a great feast for Jesus. Throws a great feast for Jesus, his tax collecting friends, because he probably couldn't find a bunch of other friends because no one wants to be his friend. And then he also throws it for his, it just says, others. And so a lot of people believe that that are the, uh, the disciples and the followers of Jesus that come with Jesus, that go wherever Jesus goes, are likely to be the others here. And it'd be easy to, again, gloss over this part of the passage, but meditate on this for a moment. In Mark 2, another parallel passage of this, the account of this story says that it was while Jesus was walking by the sea that he came upon Matthew's tax booth. Therefore, Matthew is likely the tax collector who has been taxing Peter and Andrew and James and John on their fishing business. Who do you think are not good friends with Matthew? I mean, I can only imagine the loose-lipped Peter thinking, you serious, Jesus? You're, You're inviting him into our family, what we got going here, our little startup? Like, I don't want him on our team. He steals from people. He's corrupt. He robs people. Nobody likes him. It's going to hurt our reputation. We're going to start getting bad reviews because everyone's like, look who they associate with. I can only imagine the disdain they would have for Matthew the tax collector. If Jesus were to ask the disciples, hey, who in your circles would you like to share the gospel with? They're not going to naturally say, hey, let's go to Matthew. Let's go share it with him. They want to avoid him. Maybe there's even some fear if Levi or Matthew was hiring people to, to abuse them because of taxes. It's not unlikely for the followers and disciples of Jesus to think this way. They thought the same thing about the Apostle Paul. If you remember in Acts 9, 10 through 17, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. uh, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might again uh, regain sight. But Ananias answered. So this is talking about in the context of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
So Ananias, Jesus is telling him, I want you to go and I want you to minister to Paul. I want you to lay hands on him uh, and because he's got a work for me. And Ananias is thinking, uh, <laughs> I've heard of this man. He's evil. All right. He, he literally has papers that allow him to be able to come into homes and drag out men, women, and children and bind them and put them in prison and even stone some of them to death like he did to Stephen. And you want me to go to him? And Jesus says, yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I want to do. So I could just imagine here like the, the caution that the disciples do where they're like, yes, I will go, but if he shanks me, that's on you, Jesus. You sent me. But this is the good news of the gospel. The gospel reconciles enemies and it makes them friends. We know, as we'll see in a few weeks, that Matthew becomes one of the twelve apostles and later the author of the gospel of Matthew. He goes from being despised and an enemy of Jesus' people to being their friend, their partner in the gospel, and a gift from God in their lives. And that's what Jesus does. He goes around making enemies into friends of himself and each other. He does what the Pharisees are unwilling to do because they re they re retain a them versus us mentality. How dare you go and dine with sinners? And accuses Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton because he will eat and drink with them. Well, the gospel does this work. The gospel transformed Matthew to being a gift to his friends and others around him because he introduced them to the greatest gift, Jesus. He threw a party, a feast for his friends and neighbors in order for them to be introduced to Jesus and receive Jesus and follow Jesus just as he has done. He just becomes an evangelist right out of the gate. If evangelism is something that you struggle with, then just maybe change your approach a bit. Because I think for some of us, generally speaking, people think evangelism is just meeting someone and entering into this awkward conversation where you start asking probing questions like, if you were to die today, where do you think you're going to spend eternity? And they're like, weirdo, go away from me. And I get it, the gospel's foolish to those who are perishing and, and it's only wise for those that God calls and draws. And I get I get that theology. I understand those things. But maybe there are some other approaches that we can also work into that. I'm not saying that you should never meet someone and just jump right in. All right? If the Lord leads you in that way and the Spirit's prompting you to do that, by all means, do that. But maybe another approach, another option of evangelism is hospitality. Hospitality. Throwing parties for Jesus where you invite people into your home. And you do it up. You decorate. You buy a ton of food and drinks. You invite people into your life and you ask them questions about, about their profession, their family, their story. You get to know their desires, their longings. You get to know their failures, their hurts, their tragedies. And you begin telling them, this is where Jesus met you in your story. Maybe he might meet them in their story as well. And that's what Matthew's banking on in this moment. That's what Zacchaeus, another, you know, Zacchaeus, the wee little man was he. Zacchaeus is another tax collector, refers to himself as a chief tax collector. 
So for those who like purchase the tax franchises, he's like the one that everyone wants to be like in the tax collecting world. All right, he's he is the most successful tax collector within the. He's someone who has no friends. Okay, he, he's abused everybody at that point. But he has a heart change, and his heart change moves from instead of robbing from people, he's going to offer restitution to everyone that he's robbed fourfold. Anybody that I've hurt, I'm going to make sure that I take care of them and leave it as a legacy for them. I mean, that's incredible when you go from being someone who's greedy to being someone who is that generous. But that's exactly what meeting Jesus does to people. Meeting Jesus allows you to no longer just focus with anxiety around your own needs. Matthew 6. Why are you anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear? Look at, and we'll just use fall, look at the colors on the trees They don't toil to display this beauty. God does that. God's putting on display His creation. Look at the birds of the air. They don't worry about where they're going to nest and where they're going to find their food. And if God so arrays the trees and the lilies and all those things in the splendor, how much more is He going to do that for His children? Children of God, how much more is he going to care for us? How is worrying and being anxious about our own personal needs is ever going to add a single hour to our days or to our lives? It won't. So what he's essentially saying is what good is it to worry about what we are provided in this world when God knows what we need and is going to ultimately provide it for us? And what we really do in Christian life, and, and, and not maybe just Christian life, in life in general, is we work our entire life focusing on how we can serve the provision of our needs. And in some ways, what does that do? It just makes us like Levi before he's ever Matthew. It's just what can I gain in order to not worry anymore? And what God is ultimately telling us is seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be given to you. We spend the majority of our time praying for the needs to be met. Do we not? And it's not saying, it, not saying that we can't. All right. Sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. That's true. That's theology. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be given to you. What God wants us worrying about more is the spread of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel. As we live out that ministry, absolutely he's going to provide what we need in order to execute his ministry. In order to continue to advance the gospel. And so instead of worrying about building and and gaining as Levi has done, We start worrying about the condition of our tax collecting friends and our neighbors who are others 
We start worrying about them and we start moving our resources towards them in hopes that they meet Jesus. That they meet Jesus. And the beauty in that is as we continue to do that, just like the story of the mine is. This is no way me being like prosperity gospel here, but it's just that you are not going to lack provision when you are ministering for the sake of the gospel. God's going to provide what we need to execute what he wants us to execute when it comes to the advancement of the gospel. That's why some of the times I love it when he just tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to send you guys out two by two. Don't take any resources with you. No packing. Just go. There's going to be people in those towns that I'm going to send for you where you're going to be able to rest your head. Or you're going to be able to have bread to eat. Or you're going to be able to have a drink. And you're going to be able to have whatever it is that you need. I'm going to supply those things for you. But here's what I'm going to train you in to think about and work on. Is declaring and proclaiming the gospel message as you go out. And so maybe we should shift a little bit more how we view our careers and our relationships and our circles and spheres of influence, and the parks that we go and play at, all of these things aren't for us. But rather, we enter into these spaces, like Levi does here. The reason why I love that it mentions his tax collectors and others is that Levi isn't just leaving the tax collecting business everything behind, but is entering into the tax collecting business of all of his friends and saying, I want you all to come and experience something here. He doesn't just leave it all behind and say, guess what? I am not going to associate any longer with anything that has to do with all of that. But rather, with the transformation that I've experienced, I'm going to go to them because I don't want them to be evil anymore. I don't want them to rob from people anymore. I'm going to continue investing in what this business looks like in order for them to meet Jesus and get the gospel out. And so it's not saying that everyone comes to know Jesus and immediately becomes full-time pastors. But that you might work the gospel into what God has called you to with your gifts and your talents So that you might be able to say, all of my accountant friends can come to know Jesus because I invite them into my house. All of my teacher friends can come to know Jesus because I invite them into my house. All my social worker friends can come to know Jesus. All my electrician friends, all my doctor friends, all my whoever it is can come to know Jesus because I invite them into my house. I become a gift of God to them. That's exactly what Matthew has become in this story. A little bit of application for us. We deduce from the gospel a few important points, things that are just kind of personal commitments to remember. And this is, again, contrasting the, the, the thought of the Pharisees in this passage to what the gospel actually transforms. I am a sinner like they are sinners. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We got to not have a, a, a them versus us mentality. As soon as we do that, we, stop, we start withholding good news from them. My salvation did not come from 
being better than them, but from the finished work of Christ. And so it's not a, um, we're good, you're evil, here's good news. No, it's, we were evil, we met good news in the form of Jesus Christ. I want to introduce you to him. Because I know me better than I know them, it's true, acknowledged or not, that I am the worst sinner I know. When you have that viewpoint and that posture, unlike the Pharisees, it humbles you to be able to see that I'm not trying to posture myself in how I share the gospel with others or refrain the gospel from others. But rather, seeing in this story, and one of the things that we see later on, even with the Apostle Paul, who's like a Pharisee of Pharisees, someone who would have said, there is nothing wrong in my life. I've done nothing wrong to eventually becomes, after he is saved, I'm the chief of sinners. Chief of sinners. And therefore, I want to get this good news out to every sinner that's possible. So he's not saying I'm unlike you. He's saying I'm like you. I know. I know. I was sick, but Jesus healed me by the medicine of his gospel. And I have the privilege to administer this medicine to all of my friends and enemies alike. That's what this message is all about. I'm sick. And medicine in the form of the gospel was given to me. And it healed me. And now I get to also be a physician now. I get to be a doctor. And I get to take this medicine and distribute it to others. Which means we get to witness healing healing in the form of people no longer feeling the weight of guilt and shame and grief because there is a groaning in the world that people are aware of the reason why the world doesn't just commit mass suicide is because they believe they can still fix themselves which means there is an awareness that there's something wrong there's something wrong. Everyone would just give up if they weren't aware of this. But they're spinning their wheels trying to earn and work and earn and work and earn and work. And we get to come in and say, it's done. It's finished. Here's Jesus. Stop earning. Stop working. It's not going to work. Here's Jesus. We have the extreme joy and privilege to throw great feasts for the single purpose of introducing others to Jesus. As we enter into our time of communion, I want to read for you a passage from John 6, 35 through 40, where Jesus provides sort of a, an illustration of how he ultimately gives us what our souls are longing for. Because Levi was a tax collector because his soul longed for satisfaction. He just believed that through stealing from people is going to provide me the greatest satisfaction and the greatest life. It's going to build my own wealth and wealth is going to be what I feel is going to satisfy me. And it ultimately doesn't. And that's honestly the greatest aim of every single person. It's even those who posture themselves as you know, minimalists and, and I don't want to be rich and I don't want to be wealthy and so I'm going to be, 
I'm going to choose the, the route of poverty and whatnot. It's still for the purpose of their own satisfaction. Like every aim of our life is for our own pleasure. This is why John Piper's famous quote uh, of Christian hedonism. Hedonism is just the, the uh, desire for your own pleasure. We're all created to seek pleasure. That's actually how God created us. The fall is that we sought out that pleasure in creation, not creator. And what Christian hedonism is saying is that we're applying the gospel to it, and now we seek pleasure in God, not in everything else. And in that, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That's what we're talking about. And so Jesus enters into this story and he shares this with his disciples. Here's how you receive ultimate satisfaction. What you're longing for, here's how it's received. John 6, 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I mean, I just love that. I love that. Sometimes it's hard for us as Americans to understand hunger and thirst because we have what feels like unending access, right? We have pantries and we can just go buy food anytime we want. We, we don't know what it's like to starve and truly hunger. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. What he's saying there is, I as the bread of life and the, the, the wine, the bloodshed, the drink that we need for the removal of our sins, him being the substance for our satisfaction is what enters us into eternal life with him. He's the doorway. He's the gate. He's the source. He's the Savior. It's all Jesus. And that's exactly what Levi Matthew is doing in this story. Is he's bringing them to the bread of life. And to the, the drink of life. That is going to quench their hunger and their thirst forever. And we get to remember that truth every single week. When we come to communion. We get to meditate on the fact that we no longer have to eternally groan and hunger and thirst because we are quenched and satisfied by the offering of Jesus Christ poured out to us. We receive Jesus. We receive Jesus. And we're satisfied. We don't have to worry about what our provision is going to be and what our needs are going to be. We have Jesus. And Jesus is everything we need. And a quote, I don't remember who said it, and so it's mine now. But um, because in Jesus I have everything I need, I'm now free to give away everything that I have. 
That's what we get to do. That's what we get to do. In Christ, we have everything that we need. And we remember that because of the sacrifice that he did for us. So I want you to go ahead and stand. As we enter into this time, for those in this room who, as it says, are believers, who believe in the Son of God, all right? If you don't believe in Jesus Christ for your sins to be forgiven, that this meal does nothing for you. It does nothing for you. It's not snack time for adults, as what my son believes it is. This is for us to remember that moment like what Levi just experienced. I met Jesus and I followed him because he is now my satisfaction. He's the bread I'm longing for. He's the drink that I'm thirsting for. I no longer have that hunger and thirst anymore. I'm satisfied in Christ. We get to remember that as we are filled up by this spiritual meal that he did this and accomplished this because he paid the price that we deserved. It would have been just for God to show up to his tax booth and to strike him dead. God would remain holy. He'd remain good. He'd remain gracious. He'd continue to remain merciful. He'd remain all of those things because God never sins. But in his grace and in his mercy, because of the work of his son Jesus at the cross, he can walk up to this booth and he can tell this man, every evil act that you have ever committed is wiped away clean because I am satisfied with the payment of my son Jesus at the cross. You are forgiven. Your guilt is gone. Your shame is gone. Don't worry about others that probably are still going to be mad at you and nervous around you. Don't worry about that. They're going to see that I transformed you because I took your sin and I gave you my righteousness. You are now a gift of God. And I want you to put yourself in that same position when you take today. You are not your old self, your flesh. You are a son and daughter of God in whom he is well pleased because he has given you the righteousness of his son Jesus because Jesus took your sin and absorbed it on himself at the cross and he broke his body and he shed his blood. And as you fill this up and you, you receive this and you receive that assurance and that goodness and that grace and that mercy, man, leave from this place and go and be like Matthew. Be a gift to others. Throw parties this week. Do it up right. And man, just introduce some people to Jesus who's changed and transformed your life. So go ahead and come on down front. Grab the elements. Come back to your seat. And we will remember this good and wonderful truth together.